welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What happened to my wheel of cheese? Very excited about this podcast today. Before I introduce our guests for this podcast, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are that you may hear. I'm, of course, Richard Latour. Hello, everyone. And we also have Amanda Kasseri. Amanda, how are you? I'm doing good, Richard. It's good to be back. Good to have you back. Welcome. Hope everything is okay there where you are. And our guest today, more important than her name or what she does, she has a podcast about cheese. We'll get to that. We have Lisa K. Wood on today. Lisa, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Lisa is the Senior Principal Community Architect at Red Hat's Ospo, their open source program office. What does that actually mean? It means that she looks after the telco and networking related projects and communities with which Red Hat and their customers and partners are engaged. She's calling today from the Bay Area, been working on a lot of things in the open source world for a while, including LF Networking, LF Edge, and the EBPF Foundation. Engagement with open source began in 2013 and been going happily on since then. So I have some immediate, immediate questions. One, just give me some context and scale. How big is Red Hat's Ospo? Because isn't all of Red Hat technically kind of an Ospo? You know what? Actually, it's really interesting because as Red Hat has grown over the years, it has necessarily brought in not just engineers, but lots of salespeople. And the salespeople are first and foremost salespeople and secondarily software salespeople, but not necessarily immediately versed in open source. That's something that we look for, but it's necessarily the first thing that gets hired for. But the same is kind of true of engineers. A lot of them, especially now that it's not just about Linux, you know, they have expertise in various other kinds of coding and programming and software development. But open source is not necessarily their first skill set. So, but you know, beyond that, our open source program office is a little bit different than others in the sense that we worry a little bit less about licensing and enforcement and so forth. We have lots of people who are versed in that within the company. We focus much more on, I would say, outbound open source in the sense that we work upstream in the communities to ensure that the communities themselves are practicing good stewardship, that we lend our expertise to governance matters a lot, the communities that we participate in are healthy and functioning properly. And we also advise internally as to where perhaps we should be engaging in different communities. Right. So within that context, can you tell me what does a senior principal community architect do? (laughs) So as you actually described based on what I had written earlier, so our team is focused on the huge constellation of open source projects and consortia and communities that grow up around particular vertical industries. So I'm focused on telco primarily. I dabble a little bit in healthcare. We've got someone who's focused on financial services space, someone who's focused on automotive and industrial edge, things like that. So there are some 25 projects I track actively in the telco space. There are many more, obviously, that we're not directly involved with and they're not necessarily hugely meaningful for us. And my day job is just to make sure that we are showing up and participating in those communities effectively that the communities themselves are healthy, that we are getting useful things out of our participation, and so on. So that's really kind of the bread and butter of my job. 
I love, Lisa, how you bring up the fact that open source projects exist as constellations with all of these different things intertwining as a part of it. And I'm really curious for you and how you start to think about where you need to pay attention and what doesn't require as much attention. How do you kind of figure that out in such a large space with all these different groups? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think this sort of goes to sort of the core topic of what we're going to talk about today. A lot of it really, there are sort of two pieces. One is community help. If it's good, I don't have to worry about it quite as much. If it's bad, I really should be paying a lot more attention to it, see what I can do. The other piece of it is how strategic is it to us as Red Hat? Yeah, there are some communities that we may not be as involved with from a technical standpoint, but they're really kind of the main watering hole for the industry. And so that's really where we meet with our customers, our partners, and sort of talk about the big, broad topics within the industry, even if the particular projects that are in that space are not necessarily immediately relevant to us. So it's an art, it's not a science by any means. But <laughs> And there are some groups who are important, but they are important purely from a technical standpoint and less from a sort of broader industry strategy standpoint. And for those, I just do regular check-ins with the engineers who are involved and put that together with what's going on in kind of the more strategic groups. So I'm really curious about this because I also work with a lot of different communities and I have over the course of my career. And one of the hardest things for me has been saying goodbye to a community or deciding to split ways. It's really easy to get involved with a new community. Hey, show up to the meetings. Hey, go to the, put notes in, give money to it, assign an engineer to it. That stuff is like not hard. What's hard is figuring out ROI for your company based on that investment, A, and then B, racefully ending that. Yep. And I know you have some thoughts on this. So I was really curious. We could just dive right in. Yeah. How do you manage that? Yeah. Well, so when I first joined Red Hat, you know, I sort of went and took a look at all of the memberships that we had, right? We had a number where we were paying money, but we had no engineers. We were not active in any way. And I said, okay, so why are we here? And nobody could give me a good answer. So we did renew them, period, in a sense. Effectively, we had already left, right? So no harm, no foul there. Where it becomes harder is where there are personal connections that have been formed. And perhaps the individuals involved don't necessarily want to walk away from the work that they've put in, but also the relationships that they've built, even if the community itself is no longer serving the purpose that we originally joined it for. If it's a sort of an individual contributor, Red Hat is really cool about people doing things on their own time. And if you want to put some time into that, that's fine. That's on you. The challenge becomes if that individual has either been really key within that community or if that individual has been a decision maker within Red Hat and doesn't want to pull out, even though on paper it makes all the sense in the world to pull out, but that person is a decision maker with purchasing authority. So those are kind of, there's the individual has to decide it's time to leave, but the company also has to decide it's time to leave. Those are kind of two different levels of when is it time to say goodbye. I'm so glad that you wanted to talk about this today, Lisa, because I feel like this, the topic that we talk a lot about, like onboarding new things and bringing in new things and starting new things. I think for Richard's point earlier too, about the easy to show up, like it's easy to start that. And I feel like it's fascinating because some folks have absolutely no problem ripping out projects out of their repositories and like sticking new ones in or doing a refactor. And at the same time, when it comes to the people part of that, when it comes to the connections and the communities and like everything that you've built, 
you refactor and you do things internally. And that has to reflect then for what you said is like the strategic direction of the company. If you're not using that tech anymore, how long do you stick around in that space? And how long does it make sense to stick around in that space, make those investments becomes people problems, which is harder because it's also affecting the people that you're working with or the ones that you're supporting. I'm just, I'm really curious. It's like when you think about those kind of ending points or like I call them sunsets, like sunrises and sunsets, right? It's time to set the sun on this relationship. How do you know when it's time to do that? Do you have like a checklist? Do you have a feeling? Like how do you start approaching the timing itself of when that's oncoming? And how do you help negotiate that with the people behind the project in a way that maybe retains relationships or connections without causing that like that hurt? I'm going to answer that in two different ways, going back to those two different levels, the individual versus the corporate. When it's an individual who has really put a lot into the community, let's say they're leaving for another company and they're at their new company, they're no longer going to be involved or just for personal reasons, they need to step back or whatever. That's often really emotional for everybody. And I think the best way to handle that is just simply to have the conversation with project leadership and explain, this is how it is. This is hard for me too. How can I ensure that everything that I have learned and so forth, what is the transfer of of knowledge plan here? Put that together. Sometimes there isn't really a lot of time to do that, especially if an individual is changing from one job to another. So could be just some sort of informal agreement of I'll be around, you know where to find me kind of thing. If you have a question, it could be I'll document everything I can in the next three days. (laughs) I think that if you're an individual who's in a situation coming to the project leadership with proposal or a plan for how you kind of hand things off to other people is perhaps the best thing you can do. And sometimes it's not necessarily that amicable. I mean, sometimes there's bad blood and people just say, well, what the heck with this? In those situations, the person just disappears and maybe their contributions were important and maybe the community just decided they've left because the community just decided to go another direction. That happens sometimes. And in those cases, the community soldiers on as it was going to do and healthier communities will take stock of the situation and what happened and think about if there was something that perhaps they could have done differently to preserve that knowledge, even if they're going in a different direction. But not everybody does, but it is something to give a little bit of thought to when there is a flare-up like that. On the corporate side, it's a little bit harder. So one of the things that I did when I joined Red Hat, because I was going through this sort of winnowing process, is I just simply, we didn't have a really, we had a justification form, but it was pretty lightweight for joining a community. And I kind of put a little bit more rigor into it and into the process of really trying to draw out and have stakeholders articulate why they wanted to be there and concretely what they wanted to achieve in the next year with this membership. It's hard because sometimes it's just, well, we have to be there because our customers want us to be there. Okay, that's fine. What are we going to get out of being there with this customer? And if at the end of the year, you customers long since forgotten that they ever asked us to join, that they had just never asked us about it again. And we're not getting anything out of it either. You know, that's a signal for the sales team to have the conversation with the customer if this is that relationship is still really important to them. Because if not, we have other places that we could be better investing in order to better just serve them. So I mean there's sort of the gamut for why you join the cover the thing to begin with. But using that same checklist, because we have that conversation every year, And sometimes it's like nobody can really answer the questions as to why they're there, but they're not ready to let go yet. Every time you have that conversation, 
it highlights to them that they really don't have good reasons for being there. And so sometimes it's the internal process of getting people to let go. And sometimes you wind up being there for longer than you really should be. So it goes, our money. But you're showing them every single time we're walking through this. If we had to do this from scratch today, would we be joining this? Right, because you can't always count the budgets at the same place it was before too. So that's sort of the things that you have to walk through perhaps internally. But on the other side, it's especially if it's a strategic project, it's having a conversation with the other organizations in the community who may be your customers and partners. And sometimes also sort of managing ahead of the curve competitively because your competitors are also in that community. And if you if you decide to leave, what are you leaving behind for your competitors to take advantage? Right. That's something you have to think about and talk through internally, but also with your customers and partners. And that can be a many month process. Yeah. You mentioned healthy communities are able to take feedback like purpose sponsor leaving and deal with it and adjust. That's really strong wording for communities. I think don't often think about those skills as being skills necessary for an open source project, right? That's by the project that did that. That's above healthy. That's like glamorous. I was curious what advice you would give. Do you ever signal to open source projects that this is going to happen or that this is what you need back for corporate in order to continue involvement? Because I imagine that's a very hard conversation to have with open source projects, but open source projects also need to know that companies work a certain way. And if they want X, they need to give Y sort of. So I'm just curious how you signal that to the projects themselves. We've had very straightforward conversations saying exactly that. I mean, sometimes it's just simply this isn't serving our needs anymore, but we haven't been necessarily the key most contributors to the community either. So it's just companies come and go and we found up our participation. And thank you very much. It's been great knowing you. And that's that. But in situations where we have been primary contributors to a community and the community is no longer serving our needs, then we have had that conversation. In one situation I can think of, I don't think that all the reasons were fully ingested. And that's hard because again, this is a community that we have been involved with, that I've personally been involved with for a long time. And I know the individuals involved quite well, but it's not just a one conversation. It's not a one-shot conversation, especially if they're, because it's hard for people to hear those things. It has to be sort of a drip, 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 drip. That makes a lot of sense to me. I know there's been work in the sustained community before on authentic participation and open source from companies. And I know there's a lot of resources for that. Things like the to-do groups tell you how to work effectively with communities and how to think about it and how to have these conversations well. I just really wish that the conversations weren't all kind of soft. I wish there was some sort of resource out there saying, if you're an open source project, here's what you need to do to have these conversations with a large company that may be able to help you out. Here's how you need to think about project planning and here's what you need to show. I feel like that would be really useful. I don't know if that exists out there beyond like bespoke individual projects. And maybe you don't know either. I'm I'm just really curious about it. No, I mean, at this point I'm coming because I've also been on the other side. I used to work for the Linux Foundation. I mean, at this point on the corporate side, I would say for the project leaders who are not on the corporate side, who may be part of a foundation or something like that, that's even more of an art than a science. (laughs) And they wear so many different hats. They're fundraisers, they're promoters. Sometimes they have project managers working for them. Sometimes they themselves are project managers. Depends on the size and scale of the project they really have to be jacks of all trades. And the skill that allows them to be good at some of those things isn't always the skill set that also allows them to be thoughtful, empathetic, receptive listeners, right? Because especially because if your job is to be a salesperson and a promoter, 
you know, your job, you have to be the sort of person who hears a criticism and immediately is thinking about how do I turn this around? How do I turn this into a positive? How do I spin this and make them feel better? And that doesn't necessarily lead to making really listening and thinking about how do I make substantive changes? It's more, how do I address the feeling and continue to make the sale? That's a different personality and different skill set. It's a hard thing. Sometimes it's finding, especially if there, if it's sort of, there's a person and a group of people around them. Sometimes it's finding the person that the big head honcho trusts and listens to and getting them to really understand where you're coming from and have, having them help. I'm so glad you bring that up too, because I feel like that is the part of the art is that even if each project were to try to tailor their messaging or their story for one piece, like corporations with big checkbooks, it's not one person who's making decisions. It's somebody who's involved in it or somebody who noticed it. And then there's the person who might cut the checks, which is very different. And the person who owns that overall budget, who the person who cuts the check has to report to, like, it's just this web of folks that you are trying to explain why this one thing is important enough that we need to pay attention to it at least for the next year. And then the hard part is that, well, so corporate budgets don't work like long-term. So they work off of cycles. And here's when we're going to talk to you again and look at whether or not this is important again. And I'm super curious then, I know a lot of folks in open source, we work at different areas of like, how can we push more transparency, openness, not just for the code, but for other aspects. Do you feel like it's straightforward for projects that you work with or communities that you work with to understand either how decision-making is made around sponsorship or support? Or is that something that overall we could do a better job of in the industry? I would say that the project leaders that I have worked with, most of them have tended to come from large corporations themselves. So they're pretty familiar with that side of thing. It's more, they sort of get caught up in the promotion aspect of their jobs and the roles of as project leaders, it's hard for them, especially because they are invested in the project and they're promoting the project, it's hard for them to hear and act on feedback. And so I think just it's the nature of their role. I think that if you're coming from a sponsorship standpoint, I think as a sponsor of the project, you kind of have to acknowledge that reality. That's where they're going to be coming from and help them and it's not necessarily just going directly to them always, as I, as I was suggesting, it's, it may be sort of creating a, co- if there's a concern that's sort of widespread within the community, it's bringing several sponsors together to have the conversation, but gently so that it doesn't feel like it's like a, <laughs> a mob coming at you, but we're trying to fix things, we're trying to make things healthy. But if it's not, we can't keep going like this because it's not helping us. Sometimes it's not necessarily going straight at the leader. It's going at other members of the community or people around the leader who can sort of help the leader hear what needs to be heard. So I'm thinking about your particular area of expertise, which is networking. And for me, that comes off the digital infrastructure. That's bucket into which I assign it, which is very difficult, again, to prove ROI for. And so I, because it's like stuff that just needs to happen at the base layer, but it's not necessarily customer facing. Unless I'm misunderstanding Red Hat's model, which is totally possible. I don't work at Red Hat. And some of the questions you're talking about in terms of like, we need to figure out who's going to talk where and how's that going to work. Sounds to me also like you're always looking at charismatic projects. You're always looking at projects which have a really easy selling point. And I'm just curious how you judge the worth of a project to Red Hat or to you, which is much lower level, which just doesn't get, which helps build out the ecosystem, basically. 
So let's separate networking and telco. <laughs> so Thanks. Networking... I need to learn a lot. So please. Thank you. <laughs> so networking is a horizontal technology and it is a thing that needs to happen in a lot of different technical contexts, right? So it took a long time, for example, for Kubernetes to understand that there's a little wire on a diagram that actually connects your apps and that helps the different components talk to each other. That's a thing called the network and that you need to include networking people in your community in order to make this all work. I got there. The telco community is an industry for whom networking is a core business asset. And so there are two, in order to sell into those companies, those telco companies, you have to be participating in all these different projects and standards bodies and consortia and so forth and so on. We spent the last eight to 10 years rebuilding much of the old school 1950s telco stack in open source using more modern software technologies and approaches. But the other part of it is, okay, well, how do I make this, all of this stuff work together and interoperate? There are the standards conversations. Telcos love standards. They live and die by standards. A lot of the people coming from telco companies in our open source communities are actually old standards people. So five years ago, there was a lot of work that had to be done to help them understand how an open source community is different from a standards body. We're mostly past that now. But so when we engage with our telco customers and also our partners who also engage with telco customers, it's really a much more of a conversation around where are the gaps in the stack that still need to be filled? Where are the interoperability pain points? How do we make sure that all the different pieces of the stack that we've been building are able to talk to each other in a cohesive way that isn't going to break because that is the number one thing that telcos, that keep them awake at night is I can't have anything break. We must have of time at all times. My, my, my network cannot go down. And so the conversations that we have with these companies span many, many different communities just because it's not, we're not talking about one single type of technology. So you mentioned that you've been switching over the past eight, 10 years from basically old closed source proprietary systems of networking to more open source ones as part of this update. But then you also mentioned that these are incredibly security, redundancy-minded people trying to make sure that everything always works. And right now, one of the hardest things in open source is just a constant security discussion of how do I stop everything from breaking all the time? I can't have another heart bleed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just curious if you could give us a bit of insight into what it was like to be part of that process and how did that even work? How do you get telcos to adopt open source code, which is different than, say, a standard yeah. in their stacks? Because I don't know how I would politically pull that off. So I'm just really curious. So I think this isn't where it started by any means, but I think the big thing that happened in the telco industry is that AT&T got religion in a big way. They basically took a huge chunk of this project that they were working on that was sort of figuring out how to orchestrate a lot of their lower level stuff and connect it into their OSS and BSS layers, their own proprietary operating orchestration systems. And so it was sort of this layer in between the OSS and the lower level stack. And so they took not all of it, but a big chunk of it and just kind of brought it into the open source world and said, here, 80% of this is stuff that we all do, that we all have to do, because we're all figuring out how we move from one hardwired machine for one application and one set of things, being able to spin things up and spin things down, you know, sort of at need based on what customers need. 
at any given moment, right? We're all trying to do that. We're all we're moving towards the same basic model. We're all going to be doing 80% of this stuff. So let's figure it out together. What they brought was very heavy, very monolithic. At a certain, about a year and a half, two years into the thing, it was completely refactored, rewritten, containerized. And that was a whole process for the community also. People in those companies were also working in the Kubernetes space, becoming more expert in that. And so they were able to kind of bring that expertise back into the core of the project was called ONAP and figure out how do we refactor this in a more modern way. But also, even before that, AT&T had invested heavily with certain colleges around their headquarters and said, we are going to put 10,000 of our engineers through an accelerated, specially designed set of courses that are going to teach them how to become software engineers and software architects. There were people who were already new telco software and telco technology, but they were just like, okay, hard shift. We're just going to go over here and we're going to teach you how to do it so that you can participate in these other communities. Because there was that center of gravity that helped bring in a lot of the other telcos and AT&T did a lot of evangelical work. The same thing was happening in China with the big Chinese telcos for very different reasons. The Chinese have, they're very concerned with ensuring that they are self-sufficient in a number of key technologies and industries. Food is one of them. Communications technology is another one. So from their perspective, because they've been left behind or tried to leave behind a number of times with regard to communication technology over the last century or more. So from their perspective, they got locked out of a lot of technology, a lot of proprietary technology that's their export restrictions and so forth and a lot of things, proprietary technology. So they saw software and particularly open source software as something that they could ensure that if they engage with it properly, they would be able to connect seamlessly with the rest of the world. So that's why they really got hot and heavy with open source technology. The scale of Chinese telcos dwarfs AT&T in terms of number of users. It's a factor of 10 at least. Well, we're talking about tens of thousands of people working on something. I know that's AT&T, not Red Hat, but Red Hat itself is a very large company. The scale of the story that you're telling is awe-inspiring to me and awesome. And it shows someone with a huge breadth of experience and a huge breadth of knowledge of how this works. When I think about the average open source programs office, they have maybe one person and they're thinking about maybe putting $50,000 into open source and maybe doing that in a strategic way to align with a VP, a CT, a something, right? This is a different level. This is much more like we need to get X to happen. The entire industry needs to move. That competitor needs to get locked out and that country needs to get locked in. How are we going to make that happen? And when thinking on that scale, I don't even know the basic alphabet to write up the readme that I would show to myself to figure out what sort of project I should invest in or not. So I'm just curious, in general, when you're speaking in that language, what words do you say to tell yourself, how do I support open source? And how do you judge the worth of individual projects? Most of the people I work with in these projects are 50 plus years old and they've been in telco for 30 years. So we all know, because we've been around, kind of the shape and size and scale of what the industry is and the beast that it is and that it isn't. And the people have slightly different ideas of what it could be. But I think because there's been this move of telco companies into the open source world, there's now a really a forum for people to talk about what it could be and how it should be and, and what that should look like. And in ways that there weren't before, 
I think especially with countries like China. And it's still difficult because of the time zone and language barriers and so forth. But there's this whole other scale and industry imperatives out there that people are working against, I think sort of challenges everybody to think a little bit differently. And so I think that has been fantastic for everybody involved. So one of the companies I work with in one of the projects is Infosys. Again, they're working on a massive scale. In India alone is the most populous country in the world. Even I think they've even surpassed China now. And they work on a global scale. And they are trying to figure out both within India, there's a digital revolution initiative within India that's really trying to figure out how do we help these millions of little small businesses in India sort of get connected to the internet and become more productive and tied to the rest of the world? And how do we replicate that in other similar types of countries? And that's the scale that they are working at. That's just fantastic to me. And so the woman that I've been working with there, she talks a lot about how do we work on technologies that will facilitate rollout at the edge in these very finite, low-tech environments that have to be managed really from the telco side because the people on the at the far end of the wire can't do that work. And yet it still needs to be pushed all the way out to the field, the literal field where people are growing wheat or whatever. And that's what's so exciting about the industry to me is just because there are all these people who have been there for a long time, who've been doing this work, who've been thinking at this scale, like that's the kind of knowledge that gets brought to the table in these communities. I love how you bring up the different kinds of scale and how things have evolved over time. Because I mean, and it sounds like for when you first started working and networking and working with telcos, the information scale and connectivity was not at the rate that it is now. And so I'm, I wonder, or I, I would love to know more about, is there a specific scale of problem or project or community that you find yourself naturally gravitating towards? And is that the same now that it's always been? Like, have you always sought this kind of like higher level of connectivity and higher level of project? Or has it been more of the like three people is my max. I would like to work on this that touches this many people. And that's it for you personally, Lisa. How has that evolved over time? And where is that today? Yeah, no, I've always been very much a big picture person. So that's kind of my natural bent, which is probably why I've wound up where I have. But my first open source project that I ever worked on was Open Daylight. And that was kind of, there were other open source SDN controllers prior to that, but it was really the one that sort of got out of the universities and kind of attracted a lot of attention in industry and had a lot of people involved from really all over the world. And the people I'm closest to in the industry are the people I met in that project. It was a really exciting time in the networking industry. It was really just SDN itself, software by networking was really shaking up how networking had been done for decades. And I had spent years in companies that made their money by selling sheet metal. They happened to have some software inside, but they were really excited about their sheet metal and their chips. As a software person in a hardware company, you're always kind of like the odd duck out. (laughs) But getting people to think in sort of more flexible and free-flowing terms was really, really exciting. I don't think I'm answering your question, though. (laughs) No, I think you did in the beginning. Like You've always liked working on large-scale strategic projects. And it sounds like as that has changed and like what level that exists at, that you've constantly kind of sought that like higher level of things to be working on because you're fascinated by really like, how is it that you can be looking at things from the widest view possible? Yeah. So one of the things that we haven't talked about a little bit is especially when you leave a community as a corporation, there's the handoff that you have to do within the community. We talked about that before, but there's also the hand on 
one of the things that I think we've been talking about with telcos and the knowledge that that industry has acquired over the last eight to 10 years about how to do open source, like even if one of them leaves a particular community or if we leave a particular community, like they take that knowledge and that mindset shift with them, right? They take that on to their next endeavors, whatever they might be. And I think it's important not just as individuals, but as a company to be conscious of what you have learned in a community, perhaps document it and say, these are the particularly useful things that we got out of working in this community. And let's make sure that we take that with us into our next community, what we've learned and help seed that in our next community. And so that we can take the best things that we got from that community forward. I love that. Keeping in mind the idea of taking what you've learned and being able to access it later, seeing as how we're running up on time, Lisa, is there anywhere where people can follow your words on the web? Do you have a blog? Do you have social media, et cetera, et cetera? So I'm at Real Lisa C on Twitter. I don't actually talk that much about tech anymore on Twitter, <laughs> mainly because Twitter is kind of disintegrating and also because a lot of the work that I do is sort of behind the scenes at this point. And so I have to be sort of be relatively quiet about what I do. Where I am most talkative about what I do is actually about cheese and not tech. So, what's the name of that podcast? What is it actually about? It's called Into the Curdverse. And it originated because I was live tweeting my cheese making activities. It actually started before the pandemic, but people really got into it during the pandemic. And they just had all these questions about, well, how do you make cheese? And I started talking about other things related to cheese. And it just sort of became this, these very, very long threads. And I thought, okay, well, let me just put it all in one place. So it's really, it's for people who are kind of interested in cheese, don't really know where to start, kind of get a little overwhelmed with the cheese case. <laughs> so anyway, that's my little side passion project. That is such a good name. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Everyone, if you want to hear Lisa, just go to intothecurbverse.com. We're all just talking about cultures here, right? There's nothing else. Exactly. It's actually a good segue into Spotlight, part of the show where we highlight people, projects, things, or places which have really helped us out, which in our career, we feel like should just have a bit more light shed on them. So Amanda, what is your Spotlight today? So following my track record of sharing research papers that I'm excited about, this one popped up Actually, I think yesterday to the top of the pile, and I will say the caveat, I have not yet read this, but one of the co-authors, one of my more recent collaborators knows and recommended well. So the paper was released in Nature and there is an open access version, which I've posted. It's called Name-Based Demographic Inference and the Unequal Distribution of Misrecognition. So it's a group of scientists that are examining the ways that People try to do demographic inference based off of names, usually that are found online, and how misrecognition does not evenly happen or occur across different individuals and different identities. So I'm very excited to read that, also because I'm very excited to cite that paper in a lot of work. That's my spotlight for today. Excellent. Thank you. My spotlight is going to be Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series. I just really love Stephen Maturin a lot. He's the best example I can think of right now for the old naturalist philosophers of the 1800s, who is always what I've wanted to be. So if you want to know what Richard wants to be, go read Master Commander, because one of the characters in it has a very sad, depressing life, but has a lot of fun time identifying insects. So that's great. Lisa, what about you? It's sort of more kind of on the she side than on the tech side, but there was an article a number of years ago, three or four years ago now, about a woman named Christina Wadner, who is a microbiologist who is looking at the gut microbiomes of nomadic herders in Mongolia. It turns out that 
anybody who's interested in traditional cheese making or dairying winds up doing field work in Mongolia. It also so happens that I have academic background in Asian studies and I am married to someone who is of Mongolian descent. So I had my own previous interest in Mongolia and Central Asia. And so when my two, my, my cheese making interests and my historical interests collided, it all wound up like, wow, this is fascinating. And then it turned out that I myself wound up having an autoimmune situation relating to my gut microbiome. And so I keep going back to that paper because it's just, just so fascinating to me and informs so much of what I do from a cheese making perspective. It was so good to have you on. This is excellent. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can do a few things to stay connected, keep in touch, and be awesome. One of them is like this podcast wherever you downloaded it or saw it. Two, go on to intothecurvedverse.com and look at the side. Notice all the places where you can get that podcast. And then like at our podcast at sustainoss.com. Org, and you'll see that we don't offer all of those. So if you feel like we should be offering this somewhere else, let me know and I will change that. You, if you feel like you've had any other thoughts that you want to like throw at us, that's cool. You can do that too. Email podcast at sustainoss.org that goes to all of the hosts. We love questions, concerns, complaints. We have never gotten an email to this email address. I say this every time. Please send me an email with a smiley face. If you have any thoughts about Lisa's podcast, which you've just heard, you can go on our discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org where you can have a lovely chat with other people. We also have a Slack, the Open Collective Slack. Please do check that out as well. If you have suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear them. And of course, we are on Mastodon and Twitter and linked in the graveyard of social media. With that, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. This was the best. Take care. Good luck with the cheese and just awesome. 